He said, in the real world, virtue serves no useful purpose. Even a woman uses her virtue as a mask to disguise her physical weakness while showing off her sexuality. The Marquis de Sade had little compassion for the weak or any guilt for his actions. And he believed sexual gratification was rooted in power over the weak, a power similar to nature's ability to forever rearrange indestructible molecules for its creations. Whether God is dead or alive did not matter to Donatin. What mattered to him was that knowledge and vice had rewards. Emboldened, he continued, the idea of heaven having power over us was designed by hypocrites and charlatans to deceive and suppress the strong. I listened to him curiously, wondering if war, murder, and cruelty were really necessary. So I asked him the purpose of these crimes of strength. War and murder release atoms of matter for nature to recycle, he said. It follows that mercy, charity, and virtue in general only help the weak to survive longer than necessary. Somewhat shocked, I sensed that he was telling me the truth because he didn't care whether I respected him or not. His libertine logic reminded me of the Irish poet Yeats, who professed that the best means of achieving freedom was through battle, rage, drunkenness, sex, and art. Like Friedrich, who believed that man could be described as a herd animal, Donatin compared the virtuous weak to lambs among the ruthless wolves that nature feared. No wonder he aspired to be a wolf for, based on the limited truth he understood from experience, he had lost hope. The jester had beaten the Marquis de Sade. The idea that the tragic visions of Donatin and Friedrich resulted from their being deprived of hope by the jester daunted me. The jester understood the gag. He knew how to get the snake out of the shepherd's throat. He knew how to stop the fall. If nature were unstoppable, ruthless, uncaring, and ruled by the urge to create and rearrange molecules, then it would seem that nature could also reorganize a person into a being that did not root sexual gratification in power. To me, it seemed that the problem was the gesture, who was hiding the answer to some simple mystery that could restore the death of hope. There had to be a way to force the gesture to walk the tightrope first, tempting the stormy freak to reveal what he knew about becoming the overman. Tormented by these ideas, my entire existence 
has revolved around solving this riddle, especially since I met John Friedman, Irish by blood, impulsive by nature. This is as much a story about John and me as it is about the pursuit of truth. As for my identity, I must remain anonymous due to the events that transpire. Yet I can tell you that this story is about the power of the imagination to discover a new world, one that we can live in with hope, not despair. It is about giving up the ordinary life for the sake of a spiritual quest that discovers and unmasks the lost meaning of an ancient Egyptian legacy. My quest to understand the mystery of the Lester of the Jester led John and me from Dublin, west to Tucson, where we were seniors at the University of Arizona. Friends and scholars in pursuit of truth, we were on our way to a professor's home for a cloning experiment. I knew nothing about genetics and John was an English major who would sacrifice anything for knowledge about death and the dream of immortality, even though he feared death, the dead, and their domain. Stretching his slim arms uncomfortably in the driver's seat, John lit a cigarette as the Catalina Highway uncoiled before us like a serpent, unwinding to our destination. A mountaintop tourist town called Summer Haven, profiled against the golden haze of the passing horizon, John had the brooding look of a philosopher, preoccupied, distant, a darkness about him that gripped his high cheekbones and deep-set eyes. Wavy black hair and a sharp nose added to his Faustian image, disguising his Irish heritage without erasing the one birthright he valued most, his limitless imagination. The study of literature has taught me more about life than experience, John said. As we drove past a lookout with a breathtaking view of the 356-acre University of Arizona campus in the heart of Tucson, surrounded by the Santa Catalina Mountains and the high Sonora Desert of cigarro cactuses and palm trees, the campus is bathed in sweltering sunshine 300 days a year. Here, John studied classics ranging from Bram Stoker's Dracula to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. His taste for the surreal introduced him to the genius and schizophrenia of Antonin Artaud's poems, plays, and films, along with the writings of Gerard de Nerval, who pinned down his personal descent into madness moments before he suicided. Yes, Literature had taught John a lot, but not enough because he still did not have the answer to the mystery of death. My gaze wandered to the burnt umber desert of hazy light space, stone, and earth, where violet mountain peaks emerged from the luminous turquoise mist like ancient pyramids, pregnant with timeless legacies forever lost to humanity. John believed that ancient Egypt had the answer to death, and it was for this reason that he signed up for the cloning experiment. I was just along for the ride. The instructor conducting the experiment was Dr. Lucia Farrell, 
the only granddaughter of Sir Flinders Petrie, who excavated the Great Pyramid. In Tuxen, she was our closest link to the mysteries of a lost civilization. So we gave up three days of partying to be guinea pigs at the Dr. Summerhaven Laboratory. Still, I had certain knowledge of events and special circumstances that I could not mention to John, even though I was his friend. So it says here, looking for the eye of God, I saw only a socket, vast, black, and bottomless, from whence the night that dwells there streams out over the world and ever deepens. A strange rainbow encircles this somber pit, threshold of the old chaos whose shadow is nothingness, spirit engulfing the worlds and days. The Christ in the Olive Grove, Gerard de Nerval. In 1983, the Academic Senate of the University of Arizona adopted a resolution saying that it was a serious breach of professional ethics for any instructor to make sexual advances to a student, even for consensual sex. Rumor had it that some of the more libertine instructors had attended off-campus parties participating in certain rites, shall we say, that the Marquise de Chade would have enjoyed immensely. At one party, orgy mongers laddled up in haunch salty drinks from a bathtub full of vodka, grape juice, and most probably urine because the toilet next to the tub was out of order. I would not drink urine, I thought, as I watched my friend John chug a mug of the purple piss as if he were swallowing a secret remedy for eternal life. His zest for life sometimes outweighed his wisdom. He did not care what was in the tub, nor did the women around him because they were sexually attracted to John's recklessness and the quiet violence in the bottomless depths of his intelligent eyes that barely masked his soul's turmoil. Deafening music rocked the small apartment packed with people, and all one could see at times was an occasional an occasional nude female jumbled above uplifted arms and passed along in a fashion similar to the crowd surfing seen at concerts and football games. At this particular event, the chair of the Department of Psychology will lose his white jockey shorts, which would later be found grape stained and hoisted above the American flag outside the university administration building. Administrators were extremely worried about the reputation of their professors, even those not engaged in sexual orgies, such as the careful scientists in the chemistry department, who were more interested in federal patent law. By 1980, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that a genetically created new bacterium could be patented. In the same year, Martin Klein and his co-workers created a transgenic mouse transferring the functional genes of one animal to another. By early 1983, researchers had located a genetic marker for Huntington's disease on chromosome 4, and word was out 
that in Denmark, scientists were attempting to clone a lamb from a developing sheep embryo cell. Genetics had made great gains since Watson and Crick defined the double helical structure of DNA in 1953, and Paul Berg cloned the first gene in 1973. University professors and scientists were scrambling to patent man-made microorganisms and had their eyes on Nobel Prize nominations, and some were taking foolish risks that were dangerous to a university's reputation. So when Dr. Lucia Farrell submitted re a request for a one-year sabbatical leave to work on a special product related to a new biotechnology tool, Dean Leonard Grosch, head of the, chem of the Department of Chemistry, has second thoughts about signing her leave. Overweight and bloated from habitual three martini lunches, Grosch sat at his immaculate desk under a central ceiling light that he always left on. The bizarre effect of the unnatural light within the pervading sunlight made him look like a large salamander larvae under a microscope, waiting to be probed, waiting for Dr. Lucia Farrar, who was late. The warm sunlight filtering through his office window made him sleepy, made the room look hazy to his bloodshot eyes, which were beginning to roll backward in his head. He imagined that he was flying over the Arizona desert like a hawk, a phoenix gliding sunward into the cool air, when suddenly the sun turned black and he fell at a rapid pace, faster and faster, choking on the rushing wind. And then the desert split to swallow him, but he saw salvation, a woman rising from the abysmal rupture in the ground. She had delicate cheekbones, a bronze complexion, a slim figure, and ascetic quality, and with her auburn hair pulled away from her face, she resembled one of Renard's young French women. For a moment, Grosch stared at her like a man in love. Then he gasped in revulsion, for it was Lucia who had caught him dozing. Lucia was well aware that Grosch's gluttonous drinking habits could ruin his reputation, for this was not the first time she had caught him sleeping at his desk. Disgusted, she stood by the sunny window waiting for Grosch to recover and say something. Instead, he thick neck like a cobra ready to strike. As his tongue licked his sticky lips for leftover vodka. Slowly, he moved his large head toward the sunlight where Lucia stood. The overhead light glinted off his balding scalp as he spat words out of his mouth like venom. This leave is a privilege, an opportunity for research, and an investment toward increasing the programs of study at our university, he blurted, unmoving like a hawk guarding the university's reputation and the remains of his own. For as Dean, he was responsible for approving her research plans. Lucia watched Grosch quietly, unerringly calm, professional in her knee-length dove gray suit. And with obvious disinterest, she shifted slightly toward the window into the sunlight, which emboldened her small features and red hair. Outside, students were talking in groups, the Arizona sun beating down on them with its 103-degree heat. Lucia passed long enough to make Grosch uneasy 
and he instantly glanced away from her perceptive eyes onto the detailed description of her work in front of him. He had a high, wrinkled forehead, balding to a shock of white hair, large, fleshly earlobes, a gnarly look from too much sun and alcohol, and a certain idiocy about his face. The look of a ham-fisted peasant, like one of Van Gogh's potato eaters, fogged up his face. But he was much better dressed than a field laborer in his light blue shirt and gray suit. Leonard, she said, if my research supports this thesis, you can retire famous. Grosch glared at her, his blood thinned, hawkish eyes, yellow from too many martinis, sharpening. So, you think the release of free oxygen had a fundamental effect on the biosphere? Lucia glanced towards Grosch with a conviction. The early Earth's atmosphere contained very little free oxygen 3.8 billion years ago. The key change came with photosynthesis, the process used by green plants, algae, and some bacteria, in which the energy from sunlight is used to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. This isn't the classroom, Lucia. I know what photosynthesis is, said Grosch, turning and turning the pages of her application, his curiosity widening as he searched for her thesis statement. With passionate intensity, Lucia continued, her full face lit by the sun, her eyes bright and edged in mystery, possessed as they were by the desire for ultimate knowledge. Like a falconer, she reeled in gross, tightening the grip she had on his arrogant mind. Free oxygen, she said, was originally confined to oasis in the oceans, while the atmosphere remained oxygen-free. Then, about two billion years ago, the entire global ocean became oxygenated and life diversified into the full range of life forms as we know it. As she spoke, Gross finally zeroed in on her written thesis statement. A sudden ghastly pallor clouded his swollen, ruddy face. And you think that the oxygenation of the deep sea resulted from deposits of feces? Gross paused as a bead of sweat trickled down his wrinkled forehead. Yes, Leonard, Lucia harmonized, releasing her mental grip on the old hawk. Feces deposits from animals with sophisticated digestive systems causing the sea to become open to oxygen-breathing life in the evolution of humans. Speechless, Gross fumbled with his nose as if he had been snorting cocaine along with drinking martinis. Yes, it all came down to shit, biochemical and epidemic. Still, he would approve her request because of her reputation. Lucia Farrell, 42, was a graduate of the University of Oxford, where her research centered on quantum theory, particularly the theory of molecular properties. Years of isolated study and thought have provided a strong ground for her research interests, which she proved by means of the scientific method, enlightened by intuition, Grosch envied her credentials. An unbearable amount of time seemed to pass as he read the details of the research plan, yet Lucia was unaffected and seemed to be more interested in the dean's bookshelves than his response. 
She found a compass on one shelf and was measuring Magnetic North, where Grosch finally scribbled his name on the request. Then he stared at Lucia. Once a sabbatical leave is approved, the member must carry out the project as exactly described in the application for sabbatical leave. Lucia looked closely at the, the pompous Grosch, her lips curling into a thin, melancholy smile, for the dean did not know that he had just made a pact with Dura's dark angel. Since Albert Albrecht Durer engraved <clears throat> Melancholia 1 in 1514, no one has been able to come up with a convincing interpretation explaining the meaning of a seated satin angel in the alchemical laboratory, holding its head up with the left hand while the right hand holds a compass. A squamous form in front of the angel that looks like a mutant embryo with a sheep head curls between a white sphere and a large geometric shape or distorted cube stretched in the six pentavinal faces and two equilateral triangles. Sitting next to a ladder on a grindstone between the sullen angel and the misshapen cube is a winged sexless spirit, a forlorn hermaphroditic cherub. Four faces inhabit the woodcut along with a starry sun, a rainbow, a dead calm sea, an equally balanced set of scales, and an hourglass with equal amounts of sand. The magic square, with 16 numbers hanging directly above the angel's heads, has puzzled mathematicians and theorists since 1514. Adding the numbers across, down, or diagonally always gives 34 a number somehow related to the distorted geometric stone that is the object of the angel's melancholia. The weary angel is deep in thought, almost despairing, as if the choice for transformation was something disturbing. Scholars have interpreted the cryptic engraving as a symbol of the beating intellect of the creative genius, but Lucia believed the masterpiece was additional proof for her thesis on the afterlife transformation described by the Egyptian funerary text. It was this thesis she was working on, not the one on free oxygen that she peddled to Grosch. Like her grandfather, Sir William Petrie, Lucia was obsessed with uncovering the meaning of the Egyptian legacy locked within the funerary text. She was ready to risk her reputation to expose the truth. Now that Grosch had agreed to her leave, Lucia could accomplish two objectives, her cloning experiment and the out-of-body drug testing on John Friedman. Okay. All right, so I'm going to stop here because I need my phone to charge, but we will pick up. On chapter four, I will be back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.